Our text tonight is found in Psalm 78 and uh, verse 41. And it says this, Yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, some of you will know that over the past couple of weeks, we've been sharing much midweek and also on the Lord's Day, and thinking much on the battle that we have to trust the Lord Jesus in the midst of challenges and trials, to trust the Lord, to trust God. We know that God is in control. We know that we should trust him. But it's one thing to know those things, and it's another to believe it and live by it day by day. And as I was reading this psalm and the way it describes the varying experience of the people of Israel, that phrase in verse 41 just captured my thoughts. The people of Israel limited the Holy One of Israel. It's a staggering phrase. Now, this is a lengthy psalm, and it sees the psalmist review the dealings of God with the children of Israel through history. And the purpose of the psalm is to remind his own generation and also those following of the special relationship that they had with God. But in the review, he also highlights that there have been many troubles, many discouragements, many wanderings, times of unfaithfulness and disobedience that have marked their history. And here were these people called out by the Lord, made a nation, given specific promises, a covenant people. They were his own special people whom God had chosen and purposed that through them and by means of them, he might show something of himself to the world for his glory. They were to be set apart, different from all other nations, to show forth the praises of God. And yet, as the psalmist reminds us, how often and how quickly they would fall short of that great calling. And they would grow into grumbling and muttering and complaining and defeat, and even at times just disgrace. And looking over those times, the psalmist gives reasons why they fell into those difficulties, why they're often found in such a mess. And our text brings one of the most serious issues that showed itself amongst them. They were guilty of limiting the Holy One of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means simply this. They provoked the Lord with their unbelief. They failed to trust his promises. They failed to believe them, to trust him, and to do as he required them to do. Even when they had been shown great wonders... They still did not believe him as they should. And so that's a, that's a key issue. It's a key issue for us. You know, the children of Israel, by their unbelief, because of their state and condition, they had not been living as God intended them to live. They'd not walked worthy of their high calling. Rather, they were living at times in a state of weakness, sometimes defeat, even though they were meant to stand out as the people of God, reflecting his everlasting and eternal glory. And friends, I just felt that when you see those things, the challenge comes right to us. It's interesting, Psalm 81 has a similar theme, speaking of what the Lord's people may have been had they listened to him and walked in his way. Let me read verses 11 to 12 of Psalm 81. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me, so I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsel. Then it says later on in that psalm, verses 13 to 16, Oh, that my people would listen to me, 
that Israel would walk in my ways, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would have satisfied you. In other words, it could have been like this, but it was not. And throughout the Old Testament in those Psalms and other portions of Scripture, we see how in various ways God's people limited the Holy One of Israel. And there's great danger in that. You know, we ask ourselves, well, how then does that apply to us? You know, if we're believers this night, by grace we've been called, we've been saved, and we've been brought to be children of God, we are in such a privileged position as followers of Christ. Think of 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. We're God's people. We're meant to show forth his praises, his excellencies. So let me ask you, are you doing that? Are we individually and also together as a body of his people, are we doing that? Are we knowing those blessings of walking closer with him? How is our walk with the Lord? Are we trusting him? Are we resting in his promises? Are we knowing that fellowship with him? Are we taking him at his word day by day? Are we enjoying the the finest of the wheat, as it were, the honey out of the rock? Let me ask you, and I ask myself, what is the state of our spiritual experience at this very moment? You know, beyond ourselves as individuals, what about the state of the church? You know, you look out uh, across the land in this troubled time. How is the, the church standing out and functioning? Is she filled with the glory of God? Is she showing forth his excellencies and the praises of him? You know, we often are so satisfied with so little. Are we limiting God, the Holy One of Israel? Do we actually doubt that he is able to do great things? Do we actually really doubt, well, you know, we know that it's happened in the past, but really, in these days... It's going to be difficult. Do we actually doubt him? Do we doubt what he is able to do in our, in our own lives, in the church? You know, the almighty God, the sovereign Lord, and yet the teaching here is that it is possible for us in this specific respect to limit him and to cause the Lord to say, oh, that my people would listen to me. Do you know there's a paradox here, truths that we must hold side by side You know, it's very similar, really, to that when our Lord, just before his death, looked out over Jerusalem, and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I looked out over you? And he he spoke in that way with such emotion and, and deep feeling. He would have guarded them, he would have gathered them, protected them as a hen does her chicks, but they refused. It's a similar idea here, and we have to hold that paradox, except in the Word of God. We know that nothing can thwart the purposes of God. We know that he's sovereign. We know that he does what pleases him, that his purposes are sure. They will always come to pass. But it's also clear, as one has said, that we can rob ourselves of many of God's rich blessings. We can enter into this state and condition and be guilty of limiting God. And there is a a danger to that. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, We as a church, we have a tremendous responsibility at this time. You know, you look at the world around us. 
You see the mess that it is in. And as we say so often, there is so much turmoil, there is so much brokenness, there is despair, there is concern, there is anxiety. Do we have anything to say? Do we have something to declare, something to speak to the situation? Because we should. Are we giving the impression that with God, all things are possible? Are we giving the impression that actually the solution to our problems is not trying to stick patches over the cracks, but to come to God himself? Or are we limiting him? Are we so focused on our limitations, our shortcomings, our lack, that we do anything but reflect the glory of God? And we need to ask ourselves, how do we evaluate? How do we consider our current position? How do we know where we are? Well, friends, we must always come back to the word of God. You know, think, what have we been given if we're in Christ? We've been given new life, hope, grace, strength, peace, joy, immeasurable blessings, so much more. All these things are underlined in the scripture. We read of exceedingly great and precious promises. We're told in the word of God that they are given to us, that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. They are given to us freely. But I wonder what we know of that in our daily lives. You know, we can also consider the testimony and the witness of those who've gone before. That's another way whereby we can test ourselves, but we are, we are exhorted to consider ourselves, to consider Paul's admonition in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Prove yourselves. You say, well, how do I apply it? Well, friends, you can't read the New Testament without seeing a clear picture of what it means to be a believer what it means to live as a follower of Jesus day by day. You find it clearly in the Lord's own teaching as he proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount, that kingdom manifesto, as it were. And then how such is elaborated, explained, and taught and applied so plainly in the New Testament letters and that which goes on. You know, they're all concerned to hold up before these early Christians the pattern, the standard, the norm for believers. For the lives of believers at home, life in the church, life in the world, always reminding them of what it should be to follow Jesus and to know his work in your life. And this reminder was so important because of what was happening in the early church. You know, the people were already slipping and falling below what they were meant to be. And so the New Testament authors, inspired of the Holy Spirit, they wrote those letters. You know, they couldn't always visit the churches in person, so they sent letters. And so you find that generally you always begin with the great truths, with the teaching, as though they're saying, here it is. This is what is yours in Christ. This is the amazing grace that you have been given. This is what is there for you. And then the application which caused the people to consider the impact of the truth wasn't just theoretical. It was to impact the way that they lived day by day to exhort them to walk in that pattern. You know, put off the old man, put on the new man. And so these writers, they constantly encourage, constantly exhort, constantly challenge the people, how are you doing? How are you walking with the Lord? Are you in some way limiting God? Are you trusting him? Are you close to him? We know what God has done to send his son into the world. Why? That he might form a people for himself. You know, these things are there, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, the people of God. 
and we're told what is possible for such. And so let me just give you some things how we can limit God in our experience and how we, we must come back to the Scriptures for help. You know, what should be true of us as believers? Well, if we're believers, we should have that assurance of salvation. We should know that our sins are forgiven. We should be able to say with Paul in Romans 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know, you think of Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That is meant to be a normal experience for the believer. The Christian should know that their sins are forgiven. We shouldn't be in trouble about that. We shouldn't be unhappy about that because God desires for us to know, to be sure, to rest in him. In fact, it appears in almost every New Testament letter. Think of 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 2, 1. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, if we're uncertain about forgiveness, then we can fall into the trap of limiting God. You know, God is our Father if we're in Christ, and a father never wants his children to be uncertain about their relationship with him. He loves them, he wants them to be secure. And that is why in the word of God, the child of God, saved by grace, has an abundance of teaching to give certainty and assurance. And to doubt that word is to limit him. You know, some protesters say, well, you know, it's presumptuous. Presumptuous to say that you know that you're forgiven. But that's contrary to what the Word of God says. It limits God. God has meant for his children to know this, to know that they're his children, to know that they are loved, and that he will not stop loving them. Romans 5. We also glory in tribulations because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. God's love shed abroad in our hearts. He's not referring there to our love for God, but to our knowledge of his love for us. And that's totally right. Because in speaking of such love being shed abroad, it speaks of the outpouring of the love of God upon us. Think of Romans 8:16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It says just immediately before, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Dear friends, this is not something for a special brand of Christian. This is for all of the Lord's people. And he assumes it to be true for each of them that they know the love of God, that God is their Father in and through Christ. So I'm asking you tonight, are you aware of that? Is that the description of your experience? Because God intends it to be if you're his. The work of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to shed abroad that love to the end that we might know something of God's love for us and that the Spirit makes these things real and how we praise God that he does based on the clear truth of the word of God. And so the Christian isn't one who just goes along hoping for the best, limiting God, wondering whether he's actually been forgiven, trusting that they might just scrape through. That's to live like the ones in our text. 
That's to limit God. The children of God are meant to know this love, to rest in it, to have a certainty that their sins are forgiven, that they are children, not because of how they feel on any given day, not because of circumstances or what they've done, but because God has intervened in their lives. Because God has taken them up, taken hold of them, because they are united to Christ. They're one with him and they're saved in him. You know, we said before that at times in our Christian experience, the evil one loves to antagonize us and our own hearts too will at times accuse us and we say, don't we, you know, that sometimes those questions come in. Are you really forgiven? Are you really a Christian? Are you really the Lord's? Does God really love you even after what you've done and what you've thought? Do you really have a place in glory for all eternity? And friend, when you hear those whispers, you need to remind yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sufficient Savior. And if you are trusting in him, he died for you. He died for your sin. It is dealt with. It is done. He has paid the price. And God cannot require that payment of you again. And you are safe in him. You know, the father also raised him from the dead. So you can find that security in the fact that he will never again demand payment for any of those accusations. Jesus gave himself. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements against us, taken our sin, nailed it to the cross, and all our sins charged to the account of our mighty surety. You know, that's a great comfort. And to limit God is to doubt that to doubt that it is a work that is done once and forever done. You know, many of the great promises of the word of God are bound up in this area. You know, you think about wonderful text in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He goes on, doesn't he, in that passage and says that he wouldn't leave them comfortless, but he would send the Holy Spirit and through such they would know him more and that he would manifest himself to them. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise that they would be able to know something of him with them, that he would be real to them, even though he was no longer with them in the flesh. That's the work of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That they will know Christ in a living and real way. It's a glorious thing. The question is, do you know that? Do you know God as a reality in your life? You know, assurance of salvation is a key thing. We shouldn't limit God. If he has said he has done it, he has done it. And we need to trust him. And also, when it comes to our experience, believers should be a rejoicing people. And we can limit God in this. God's people are meant to be a rejoicing people. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice evermore. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And you say, well, is that possible? You know, Paul says, even in our trials and tribulations, the word of God says it's possible to rejoice in the Lord. We might not rejoice in our circumstances, but we'll rejoice in the Lord. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 1.8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And Peter was writing to believers, we've seen this in our series Believers that he'd not even met. Believers who had been scattered to other places and they were in awful circumstances. And so he writes to encourage them and help them. They're just ordinary Christians and yet Peter doesn't hesitate to say about them that they rejoiced with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
And the key thing was that they needed to be those who were believing. There was a deep joy which words struggled to express that was theirs even in trials because they knew Christ. And if we know Christ, we should be a rejoicing people. Christian people can know this. They should know this. And it's a great sadness when so many believers are so reluctant in their following of Christ. As though they're missing out because they're, they're not in the world. And, you know, you, you get the impression sometimes that they're almost doing the Lord a favor in following him. Oh, friends, it must never be as that. You know, if we live like that as though, you know, it's an inconvenience or it's there, it means that we are proclaiming to the world that God's way is miserable and that we're there begrudgingly and that the real happiness for the time is in the world and we're just hoping that something better will come along eventually. Oh, that limits God. Something which the people of Israel were guilty of many times. You know, they often wanted Egypt, didn't they? even though God was remarkably appearing for them, holding out glorious possibilities before them, they limited him in the matter of rejoicing. Friend, if we know Christ, it is the most wonderful thing. We should rejoice in that, that God has looked upon us, that he has loved us, that he has saved us, that we have been brought to know Jesus Christ. And you know, we should not limit God. By not being a rejoicing, thankful people, we have been lavished with grace. And even though days might be hard, we can rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in him, we should do. And then also, we should delight in God and in his commandments. 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not grievous. You know, friends, there really is no life like following the Lord. In fact, it's the only life. It's the only true living and I think so often, again, we forget that and we limit God. We think that the world's got life and we're missing out. No, the only life is to know Jesus Christ. And so we should be those who see the commandments of God as a delight. They shouldn't be a heavy burden. And yet, you know, when you look at the experience of the children of Israel, they often gave that impression. They said, well, look at other nations. You know, they've got a king. We haven't got a king. We want a king. And they despised the fact that God was their king. They envied the nations who could do what they wanted, whereas they had the law, they had to observe the Sabbath, they had to consider what they ate, they had to be wise in whom they married, but not the world. And so they moaned and they grumbled and they complained. And worse, they became like the world. Well, read on and see indeed there are many churches like that today. Oh, we want to be like the world. We don't want to stay close. We feel that that limits us. We need to be like the world. And we need to ask ourselves, is that true of us? Do we resent the narrow way? Is our Christianity against the grain? Do we give the impression that our life is bound by duty or fear? If so, we limit God. We should want to do those things that please him. You know, even if the, the world casts its accusations and its mockery, you know, who cares? We should want to do what pleases our God, to do those things that are there for us. God means for us to know the liberty of following him. There is true freedom in following him, the joy of keeping his commandments. They are meant to be a delight. And the reality is when we walk with the Lord, we know that liberty. We know that peace. It's when we wander that we don't. And so we need to delight in God and his commandments. 
And also, we should know the peace of God. We limit God when we, we don't know that peace. You know, we're meant to know that peace. Philippians 4, be careful for nothing, but by everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, this is the challenge. It's not saying that there'll never be times when we're there and we have that anxiety. It's what we do with it. That's where the battle comes. You know, we've known in our lives many different things that have caused us trouble, no doubt. Maybe we're going through it at the moment. But the promise here covers everything. And it means that we can bring all those things that trouble us, that cause us that anxiety, we can bring them to the Lord. Our battle is that often in our experience, we give in to that restlessness and that grumbling and that complaining, and we don't go to him. And so we limit him. And so instead of crying out to him and giving him over these things, we really carry them ourselves and we limit what God can do. You know, they didn't know his comfort. They panicked for the future. They turned from him instead of turning to him. And I wonder if we limit God by ruling out his ability to give us peace in every situation. You know, we have been promised that the Lord will provide and uphold and give that peace which we need if we are in that relationship with him. He will give us the grace when we need it. And we should go directly to our Heavenly Father and say, Lord, please take care of this for me. And God always answers that he has these things in his hand and we need to trust him. And when we don't appreciate that, when we deny that, when we rule it out, we limit him. And we shouldn't limit him, friends. And then there is resting in God and his sufficiency. Philippians 4, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do we know Christ to be all sufficient? Have we found him to be everything to us? Or do we limit his power, limit what he is able to grant in our lives? Contentment is gained by remembering that Christ is Lord and nothing else. That's when we know contentment, when we're taken up with him. And so, friends, we've got to examine ourselves. I examine myself and apply these things to ourselves and to the church. You know, in times past, we see when God has been pleased to move and the Holy Spirit has granted great knowledge of these things to the people of God, but we need to ask, what do we know of that today? You know, you think of Whitfield when he said, Christ came down amongst us. Can you imagine Christ came down amongst us. Now, of course, we know that Christ is with us. He's with us tonight. But it's that sensitivity and awareness to his presence. What do we know of that? Do we ever expect him to come in such a manner, you know, when we come to the means of grace, do we come with that expectancy? You know, when we read of some describing the days of heaven upon earth, do we know anything of that? God in the midst. The presence of the Holy Spirit thrilling the, the whole congregation with his power and his grace and his glory. Why are we content with so little? When God has opened the way for such, making these things available to us through all that the Lord Jesus did when he came to earth. And as we finish, I want to give some reasons why our experience at times is small and the reasons really that the psalmist explains 
Sometimes our experience is so small because of sin and disobedience. The children of Israel often stumbled sometimes in great ways because, quite frankly, they just went the opposite direction to what God wanted them to do. They just disobeyed. They knew the right way, and they went the opposite way. Are we not the same? So often we are quick to wander and run after the world, whereas we need to turn from sin and look to the Lord in every situation. That's the battle. And it's only by faith in the Son of God as our Savior and our ruler and our rescuer that we find power to stand firm and also forgiveness when we stumble. And if you're here tonight and you know that you are going in the opposite direction, that you are running from the Lord, that you are pursuing sin, pray that God would convict you and that you would turn from that and come back to him. Other times our experience of God is so small is because as we considered a little bit this morning, we're just reliant on ourselves. The people of Israel often grew impatient with God's ways and they thought, well, we're going to do things our own way. And they thought that they didn't need the power of God. They thought that they had their own resources, their own strategies, that that would be enough, but they never were. And it wasn't long before advancing in their own strength, they knew great defeat. The church is in its weakest position when it believes that it is in its strongest place. It's when we are broken and weak that God is able to use us. God blesses the humble. He blesses the contrite. He blesses those who are dependent upon him. Also, ignorance. Sometimes our experience of God is so small because we don't take the word of God as the word of God. We don't really believe what we have before us and we limit Christian experience. And like the children of Israel in Psalm 78 and verse 11, we forget his works and his wonders. We ignore the ways that God has worked in the past and so we have no anticipation for anything anymore. And then there are other reasons why our experience is small. Unbelief. We explain away the promises of the word of God. We modify them. We limit them. We don't really believe that these promises are for us. But we need to remember, dear friends, that they are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we need to trust him. Or there's wrong belief. The children of Israel sometimes got into terrible difficulty because they believed the wrong things. They did not submit entirely to what the Lord said. And that's the challenge you get that with believers today. They like some parts of the scriptures. They don't like others. And so they modify what they believe to fit with what they want. And that's the challenge. Are we limiting God because we don't believe and submit to the truth of the word as a whole? Are we picking and choosing? Or fatalism where, you know, we say, oh, well, days are so bad. It is what it is. You know, we, we can't do anything about it. You know, what's the point in praying? What's the point in reaching out? We just got to wait until things get better. But the psalmist often urged the people to come back, to cry out to the Lord like a child to their father, to plead for new blessings. And sometimes our experience of God is so small because we're afraid. We are frightened of what it might mean for us if God did work in wonderful ways. What if persecution comes? What if I have to give up certain things that I quite like in my life? What will he require of me? 
So we limit God to try and keep all that at a distance. We don't want to be uncomfortable and we're afraid of what it might cost us. And so our experience of God is small because of that. So often we want God on our own terms and so we limit him and often we are impoverished spiritually and the church is weak and lifeless because we limit him. So what are we to do? Friends, it is so simple. We've got to come back to him. We've got to cry out to him. We've got to confess our foolishness and plead for him to wait on him, to listen to him, to discern from the scriptures that which he desires for us to do, to believe him and then to do it, to obey the Lord and to live faithfully. And I pray that God would move in us, in our midst, that we might be revived knowing that real communion with God in Christ as individuals and as a body of his people together to be taken up with him, to have anticipation that our God is a great God. There is none that can stay his hand, that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly even in Penzance. And the question is, do we limit him? Do we really believe that? I pray that God would shake us if that is our perspective, that God would have mercy upon us and that he would come down amongst us once again, that we might be taken up with him, that we would not limit him, but that we would indeed see the salvation of his hand, the God who is able to do great things. He did them then. He can do them now. Do we believe it? Friends, I pray that we do. Amen.